This is a Morley Radio production. Welcome everyone to Artcast Season 2. Just a reminder, you can listen back to Season 1, which includes the previous seven episodes, on the Morley Radio website, which includes artist support pledge founder Matthew Burrows, Goldie, and Morley Chelsea alumni Susan Collis. Episode 1 of Season 2 with Andy Holden is also up there too. Artcast is a podcast presented by Matt G, artist and subject leader for fine art at the Chelsea Centre at Morley College. The decision to do this was originally inspired during lockdown by the photographs from the polio outbreak in the 1940s in America where students were being remotely taught by radio. The podcast is a series of informal discussions with artists about their work, lifestyle and how they've adapted during the current crisis we live in and as we come out of that. Their aim is to disseminate material for students by limiting screen time and providing a feed of information for when they're taking a break from the screen. So because of last season being in the January lockdown and onwards, there was obviously a lot of restrictions. So I was unable to invite students because of social distancing restrictions. However, for season two, I'll be inviting students along for the discussion. For this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Yasmin Walsh, who is studying with us at Morley Chelsea on the Level 4 Foundation Diploma in Art. It's great to have you here with us today, and I'm delighted that Artcast can move forward in this format. Season 2 is shaping up to be a great one with the guests coming in thick and fast, so please stay tuned. For this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Russell Shaw Higgs, and I'm really happy to say he's here in person, who's the first guest on Artcast to actually be here with us live in the studio. So, Russell was born in Oswald Street Army Camp, based predominantly in London. Russell has a long history as being an artist, but also a political activist, which is why it's so good to have him here with us at the moment, as he was able to talk to our foundation students earlier, who have just begun a project based on protest. In the late 80s, Russell fronted a band called Wicked Kitchen Staff, where he sang and redistributed shoplifted gifts to the crowd. In the late 80s, he was engaged as a frontline civil disobedience activist with campaigns such as ACT UP and Outrage. ACT UP was a political group working together to end the AIDS pandemic and continued to work on medication treatment, legislation and public policies. He was a frontline civil disobedience activist and chaired the inaugural meetings of queer activist group Outrage in 1990, which has set up to advocate that gay, lesbian and bisexual people have the same rights as heterosexual people and to end homophobia. Then in the 90s, Russell moved into contemporary dance, which included performances at the ICA with his contemporary dance group Two Men and Man Act at London's Place Theatre. In December 2000, Russell was remanded in Brixton Prison on a continuous naked protest where he refused to wear clothes until all charges against him were eventually dropped. He was in prison segregation jail for a month, which was continuously unclothed. After being released in January 2001 and winning several court trials, which included appearing unclothed in Soviet Crown Court, Higgs then featured in the naked protest documentary Being Human. In 2010, his improvised self-portrait video compilation was shortlisted for a Guggenheim and YouTube prize and projected outside the museum in New York. It's called 999 Days and you can view it on YouTube. It's really, really amazing. Since 2013, he's focused more on the streets, pasting up works and engaging in the world of street art and graffiti. 
Basic income posters are his most recognized street art internationally. These fly posts are also available as limited edition prints and talk from my own personal experience are incredibly hard to acquire as they sell out extremely fast and usually involve website crashing as it fails to cater for the demand. They have updated their website now. Uh, that's great. So Russell's also very engaged with the world of British politics. And for elections in 2015 and 2017, he stood as an independent candidate for Hackney South and Shoreditch. Higgs is an active supporter of unconditional basic income, which are visually demonstrated in his basic income street art posters. Russell, welcome. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to be here. (laughs) So we start off with the same sort of questions, just Mm -hmm. to break the ice. Uh, What's your favourite colour and why? So my favourite colour... (laughs) (laughs) I like very bright colours. My flat's full of bright colour and probably the dominant colour is fluorescent pink. Oh wow. I also quite like sky blue, that's the Mm. runner-up. Yeah. Do you ever watch Changing Rooms? That's made a comeback. (laughs) I'm aware it's made a comeback. (laughs) I mean... They use a lot of bright colours. Yes. I always think of that classic example of of when there's the poor person who had a a collection of prized teapots. Do you know this one? And and, uh, and whoever the changing room presenter was mocked up one of their god-awful displays. I think it was perhaps suspended from the ceiling to, to support this collection of, of teapots. And then in the moment when they're revealing to the person who lives there, uh, the whole thing came crashing down and all the teapots smashed. <laughs> <laughs> and the poor woman is in tears. Can you talk to us a little bit about that month you had in prison and maybe the resilience you developed or how you kept yourself busy? Because obviously we've all lived through this. It's not quite the same, but we lived through mm. lockdown recently and particularly some that, that sort of adjustment period. Yeah, I mean, in my life, I've been to prison for short periods, four times. Uh, there were three occasions in the 1980s for shoplifting. And then in uh, at the end of 2000, I was remanded in a prison segregation cell, uh, continuously naked. In all those experiences, I'm quite a self-contained person. I mean, prison's a different experience for different people. I'm quite a self-contained person. I mean, you are locked up predominantly 23 hours a day. I find that quite easy. I'm quite happy. I I quite like solitude, Mm. and and I'm quite happy being in my thoughts. I mean, when, when I was naked in prison for that month, I was also a mature student at Westminster Uni, and it was my final year. So I had brought a lot of books in with me, and I was actually handwriting my final dissertation while I was in there. And maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the original idea of having the naked protests. I mean, the original idea behind naked protest was to make the statement that the default human appearance should never be criminalised. And for me, it was a purely philosophical action I, I'm not someone who has a particularly strong desire to take my clothes off, although I am very comfortable with my clothes off. The police at the time were predominantly arresting us under Section 5 of the Public Order Act that we were causing distress, alarm, or harassment for a member of the public. And they could arrest us really, uh, even just under the sort of thought that this might be a reaction that we're creating amongst the public. So we quickly resorted to making video documentation of passers-by to demonstrate to the courts that people were generally friendly and smiley and they didn't see us as a threat. Mm. You could see that we were quite peaceful and quite gentle people. And the idea behind going to prison, because we decided to step up the campaign, uh, we kept getting arrested, taken to magistrate's court, found guilty. And so we felt that if we 
declared that we were never, ever going to put clothes on again until we got the result that we wanted, but we were not guilty of doing anything criminal. And, uh, and that's what we committed to in late 2000. It was a real step into the beyond. <laughs> because we genuinely were committing to an endless amount of time. It might have been years uh, of being continuous and closed, probably imprisoned. And um, fortunately, it was over within just a few months. And we did win. And then in 2003, the government tidied up the laws around non-sexual public nudity so that technically it isn't against the law to be naked in public. And the Crown Prosecution Service has got guidelines around that. Win-win. <laughs> yeah. And, and you sort of call for the state public transport to be free rather than public. That's something that yes. comes up in the UBI, Universal, yes. Universal Basic Income Posters. And, and that was really good because it really focused on creating a clear message. I was wondering, do you have any experience working as a graphic designer? or Because they're really well produced. Yeah, um, thank you. No, I mean, I am kind of self-taught, really. Yeah. Yeah, free public transport is a really important issue, really. And there are some countries and some cities where certainly the buses are free. And I, and I think it is a, an idea which is catching on much more. And that, that those those skills that you use to create like text and that, that presumably played a part in your work with ACT UP as well. And why don't you talk to us a bit about how you were working with that group and during the AIDS pandemic? Yeah, I mean ACT UP London, um, sort of my involvement was sort of nineteen eighty nine to ninety. I mean as far as sort of creativity goes, it was a very kind of old fashioned painted, hand painted banners and my engagement was much more about I was voted to be a chair for the regular open meetings and my main area was to be on the front lines of civil disobedience actions and be someone who's always prepared to be arrested. I had a lovely barrister at the time and at one time, who used to represent me in court back, back then, and one time I randomly bumped into her in the street and in a very maternal manner, and I do appreciate it, she said to me, you know Russell, I really do think you should step back a bit and just let other people be arrested for a change. <laughs> <laughs> How many times would you say you've been arrested? I, I've lost count a lot, <laughs> a lot of times. I remember you saying during the talk that you felt like you were quite rebellious when you were mm -hmm. younger. I just want to know what made you want to become a political activist. Did you have an urge just to put yourself out there? It's an area that I'm just very comfortable in. And as I say, you know, as I say, when I was a child and a teenager, I was completely politically naive, but nonetheless. I had a natural inclination to rebel. I, for instance, I went to a military boarding school in the early 70s, <clears throat> five years. And back then, teaching staff could still physically hit you, cane you, hit you with a slipper, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I recognised very early on that this, this was uh, entirely wrong. And uh, I would actually tell teaching staff you know, to fuck off that you know, you're not going to hit me. Mm. I mean, mm. it infuriated them, but it actually worked. I mean, it prevented them from hitting me. I've always had an awareness of uh, a certain degree of kind of right and wrong. And then as a young adult, I became much more politically aware. Yeah. And, it's, and it was a natural progression to then go into civil disobedience. So when you went through quite risky times where you obviously, with the police and going to prison, did you ever feel scared? Did you ever feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this? Did you ever like doubt yourself? No, never, never. Mm. I've always had a sense that I'm in the right. Um, mostly not. 
prison, as I say, you know, in the sort of early 80s, I went to prison three times for shoplifting or getting caught shoplifting, you know, a few weeks to a month sort of thing. As I say, I'm quite a self-contained person, but also I'm quite a friendly person. Yeah. So for me, the prison experience wasn't a challenge, really. Mm. You know, it's no fun being in the power of the police yeah. and, and of courts and of the prison services. Yeah. I mean, I love my freedom, but it's tolerable. Just in terms of like context for the students, I guess, uh, do you think it's become harder to protest these days, particularly with, I guess, like Pretty Patel's new policing bill for this year? And are you sort of concerned about how protesting in the world of protesting might evolve? Or? So it seems that way. I mean, I mean, it's shocking that, that protests have been restricted and clamped down on even more. Mm. But then that's all the more reason why activists should not be asking permission and should really step things up. I mean... In my experience, you know, I've been on sort of big mass demonstrations, thousands of people. In my experience, it, it makes you feel good being amongst a crowd of people or a single mind all marching in one direction, but it often accomplishes nothing. Mm. And and even, with, and even with sort of simple direct action, like sort of blocking traffic and handcuffing yourself or gluing yourself to buildings, it can get you a degree of publicity, uh, and, and have people discussing some of the issues. But really, particularly in this climate, it would encourage me to be far more of a disruptive troublemaker. I mean, I would advocate sabotage, for instance, uh, you know, really jamming up the system. And resp- I mean, there's a history you know, internationally of um, your know, protests being clamped down on, and that usually uh, provokes political groups simply to take things to mm. the next stage where you know, some groups uh, can justify extreme violence. And and I think in this day and age, you know, if if the government, if, if our government is going to restrict protest more and more, then they need to be prepared for activists uh, getting more and more obstinate and more and more radical in their response. Yeah, I guess the other question I was going to ask was how could we overcome apathy, I guess, like apathy to causes, particularly if people tend to feel a sense of powerlessness mm. or, you know, we see mm. like, for instance, petitions going through mm-hmm. and, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people signing up mm. for them and, and not being listened to in that sense. Or maybe it's maybe it's how the press has changed their coverage of protests as well and maybe the, how they frame it differently these days to maybe 20, 30 years ago. It's also yeah. very different because with social media, mm. um, you know, we're still in the very early ages of the internet and, and we're having to adjust to the first time in human history to sort of bumping up against everybody's opinions. I mean, that wasn't the case before. And yeah. apathy is problematic. I mean, it's always been a problem. I mean, protest aside, I mean, I, I, I've been involved in a lot of uh, community voluntary projects. I mean, about a decade ago, for a few years, I was involved with a volunteer group who planted trees in the local communities and cared for the trees as well. Yeah. And, and I, I live on quite a large housing estate in Hackney, so I took on responsibility for looking after newly planted trees mm. on my estate as well. And, you know, my neighbours and members of the local community would pat me on my back and say, oh, you're doing a marvellous job, Russell. And I would sort of say, well, come and join us. Yeah. You know, it's really fulfilling. You're literally putting down roots in your community. Yeah. It's incredibly fulfilling. But apathy is a very difficult thing to overcome. 
it's very difficult to get people engaged in the local community mm. and in political direct action. Mm. Yeah, there's a new term called neighbouring that uh-huh. I heard last few months, like getting that. to know your neighbours. <laughs> right. I guess that's one thing we've learned over the last 18 months is that you're only as well as your neighbour, yeah. really, and yeah. um, that our sort of systems that we have can collapse like so quickly and, and then all we've got to rely on is each other, really. Your yeah, neighbours are extraordinarily important. I think I want to talk about your artwork Mm -hmm. because I find it really, really interesting. It's really inspirational. Where did you get the inspiration to create the artwork that you've created? Because it is very different to artworks that I've seen before. Thank you. My pedestrian characters, my sort of signature image that I paste up in the streets, they come from a number of angles. I mean, I am a pedestrian in the sense that <laughs> I love walking. Yeah. I don't drive. Mm. I even avoid the tube if I can. I mean, I tend to walk for hours and I and I like walking aimlessly and, and yeah. looking around. I mean, some years back, a friend gave me a bike and although I can ride a bike, I immediately thought, oh, there's no way I want to be in the middle of that traffic. Because, you know, when I'm walking, you know, I can daydream or I can pay attention and I can stop and, you know, and I can engage with the world. As I said before, I'm quite a friendly person. I do engage with random strangers. I'm quite smiley. And um, so I am a born pedestrian. And other aspects of the pedestrian figures have other origin points. I mean, some of our pedestrians have, well, they're identifiable by the fact that their heads always have a, a black and white zero in the centre of them. Mm. And my first pedestrians, their head shape was of a hand. And that came from a number of areas. I mean, I was for a while drawing my hand on the pavement and mm. adding quite a traditional kind of eye shape yeah. and centre hamsar. And then I gradually kind of cleaned that up until it became a kind of black and white zero and and curiously during the pandemic of course uh, very quickly um the traditional public symbol of a pedestrian was suddenly everywhere mm-hmm. i mean it was on the pavements on every railing yeah. on every mm-hmm. shop window etc etc et we sort of coincided with the time when i first entered into a gallery and was kind of selling my pedestrian figures yeah, that wow. was a big growth industry, the, the <laughs> yes. circular vinyl sticker yes. industry. And I'd be very tempted sometimes, which I haven't done yet, to actually modify some of the <laughs> sort of public pedestrians, just make them into my, my pedestrian. <laughs> we could talk about the time you stood in the election and mm-hmm. how you produced a, what, a leaflet that got to 62,000 mm-hmm. homes. And I guess there's something about receiving a leaflet, you can't just delete it, you know, it's there mm-hmm. in your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering if you could just talk to us a bit about how the process sort of evolves in standing as an independent candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved standing as an independent candidate in the, in the general election. I mean, for me, it engaged so many of my sort of natural skills. I mean, as a creative person, as a political person, mm-hmm. as a, an active member of my local community, which is very important to me. Um, and your know, political leaflets in general are something that come through people's letterboxes and they're quite easy to, to ignore, similar with the sort of pizza leaflets that come through the door. So I was very aware, and it was very natural for me, that my leaflet was going to attract people's attention. I call it my Mary Poppins <laughs> leaflet, where I'm slightly levitating off the floor. I decided very early on when I was, when I was going to stand as a candidate, but, it's, but I was going to invest in a bowler hat that seemed like quite a traditional parliamentary <laughs> piece of uh, fashion. And I, and I invested in a, in a fluorescent pink uh, briefcase as well. Yeah. And I got feedback on social media that you know, 
people step, people photographing my leaflet saying, oh, look what's come through my letterbox this morning. So I knew I did get people's attention. And it's an incredible opportunity when you are registered as a candidate and say the deposit is just £500, which is quite mm. affordable. Um, you uh, automatically get a free mail drop to every address within your constituency. Mm. You, you pay for the printing costs, but uh, in theory, 60,000 addresses in, in my constituency of Hackney South and Shoreditch receive my leaflet. It's a fantastic way to get yeah. a message out there. And do you think you'll run again for whenever the next one is? Yes, I stood in the 2015 and I stood in the SNAP 2017. I didn't stand in the, whenever it was, for 2020, was it 2019? I may do. I have a slight difficulty with kind of returning to things that I've done. Uh, but I may do. I, I I had a fantastic time. Do you stay up all night? On, well, yeah, of course you do, I guess, on election night. Yeah. yeah that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I, yeah, I went to the count for my first one, and it is all night. Yeah. Just kind of milling around. I have to say, the Hackney South uh, <laughs> count was in a sports hall, and there's lots of long tables with, with people putting the various people's election forms into different boxes, which had names on of each of the candidates except for the people who weren't like myself who weren't going to get very many votes that just went into a box marked other really and you could hear my wow. <laughs> exasperated loud yeah. voice booming in mm. the sports okay other <laughs> i put all this work in and i'm just other so in the snap general election i didn't bother turning up to the vote because i kind of yeah. knew what, what a long a boring <laughs> process it was but I did watch it on telly but I regret not turning up because what I did notice is that we were all given our own oh, named right. boxes <laughs> <laughs> someone had paid attention yeah where do you sit politically now and would you vote or are you sort of not for that or... it's curious because when I when I did decide to stand in 2015, uh, Facebook memories reminded me that in the previous election, which I suppose was 2011, uh, I had written a Facebook post where my standing MP, uh, Meg Hillier, Labour MP, had knocked on my door and I had bothered to open the door and decided, you know, I'll have a proper engagement. So I brought up the blood that was on the hands of the Labour Party during uh, the Iraq war. And to my dismay, Meg did not want to engage in this topic. She sort of brushed it aside as, oh, well, that's in the past. Not that far in the past. And then uh, one of her assistants, I think, made out for the phone calls coming through and off they went. So my Facebook post for four years previously was, well, when the next election comes, I'm going to stand. I had actually forgotten that. Yeah, I can't remember what you originally asked me. <laughs> oh, where do I stand? Yeah. Yes. So I was exasperated at the way that... Uh, the mainstream media and the Labour Party treated Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. I think was you know, the most principled politician mm. of my lifetime in many ways. Generally, I've tended to be a, a, a Labour voter, but I certainly won't be from now on. I cannot yeah. vote for them now, and I may or may not vote. I do really think what should be important in, in elections is that we should have a place on the ballots uh, under the list of all candidates, that is uh, none of the above. Because you know, people often complain about, oh, you know, you, you, you've got to vote, etc., etc. Well, for well, for one thing, if the person you voted for doesn't win, then it then it's a kind of waste to vote in the first <laughs> place. And and I think if 
And I think a lot of the time there isn't somebody to vote for, but I think it would be important to make the effort to go to the polling booth, but to register none of the above and for that to be, because that would probably be quite a high percentage. I mean, often our government is only voted in by sort of 20 or 30% of the electorate. Mm. And it'd be a really important statement, I think, to have a kind of none of the above uh, count. Yeah, Corbyn was very criticised for everything, even proposing mm. a four-day week, mm. which I think at the end of the day, it was just because people were so used to a certain norm that mm. they found him... Yeah. whatever he said. such however, a threat to the establishment. I mean, he just yeah. was. Yeah, and I'm interested in, on your election leaflet, where you talk about sortition mm-hmm. and this idea that people were selected from a lottery and mm-hmm. this idea that you could actually have people from the community in power that, that make the decisions because obviously we've got such a political elite and they all come from Eton, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was interested to hear what generally the feedback you get from people on this idea of sortition because I'm curious because it is really, it's actually something I hadn't heard of before but I, I get the feeling that some people might like respond differently to it because they're so used to a certain norm. Have you had much feedback on that idea? A little and quite often as with basic income back in the day it's people telling me well it's a nice idea but you've got your head in the clouds. There is an organisation called the Sortition Foundation. They have a social media presence Mm. and a a website and they've been uh, researching the idea of sortition for a long time. The problem with power is that, you know, I mean, there's the old cliche that uh, power corrupts, but actually I think it's more pertinent to say that power attracts the corruptible. Mm. And, you know, with an idea such as sortition, where all elections would be scrapped and all citizens are, are just up in a lottery to mm. be uh, appointed as members of parliament, it just opens us up to, you know, much fairer, much broader distribution of ideas and, and representation in our community. And I'm aware that I think I might have been the sort of first election candidate to campaign with the idea of scrapping all elections. But I have been aware in the years since in various countries that other candidates, I, th- I think I might be wrong, but I think a presidential candidate in France a few years ago was proposing sortition and I know a number of politicians and and various countries have posed the idea. I guess with the universal basic income probably the most feedback you get is people saying who's going to pay for it which always Mm. seems to be the one thing that a lot of people go to isn't Mm. and is it the Pandora paper? Yeah, the Pandora papers and things mm. like that. It's very clear that mm. there's lots of money out there to, mm-hmm. to fund things like this. Mm. And um, and also, there's such things as land value tax, etc., etc. I mean, some of my political paste-ups in the street highlight this idea that, you know, long ago the land was enclosed and was stolen from all of us. And that's all the resources that the land can produce. And it's about time that we, as citizens, were paid our percentage of the the resources of the country that we live in. I mean, I don't think it's too much to ask, really. No. What would your dream art school consist of? Um, <laughs> what would the lessons look like? <laughs> well, experimentation and and encouraging the pure pleasure of learning and discovering things. One of my more generally around education. I mean, one of my uh, election candidate proposals, you know, was with the idea that schools in general ought to be a democratic environment where the children are encouraged to have a say in the setup of the school. And that fundamentally the role of the adult at school should be there to encourage and support children and teenagers towards becoming actively engaged mm. adults in yeah. a properly democratic society. What do you think of that, Yasmin? Yeah. You've, you've just come back from <laughs> uh, what, what, the student forum? 
Is that what you had earlier? Yeah. Yeah, because you're a student rep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. And what advice would you give to the, the class of 2021? <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to or any protesting advice ways of sort of knowing your rights i guess and, mm. and knowing if you do get arrested who to speak to and what support mm. and resources to call upon yeah it's always good to have a good solicitor uh, to back you up i recognize that as individuals and that we all have different strengths and we all have different things that we're comfortable and not comfortable with and there mm. are many reasons in our lives why we may or may not put ourselves uh, on the front line when it comes to sort of politics and civil disobedience. But I would encourage greater political engagement from everybody. I mean, even if you're not into protest, I would certainly encourage everybody at some point in their lives to put themselves forward as a parliamentary candidate in the yeah. election. Because <clears throat> for me, for instance, you know, I was in a very safe Labour seat. It was never going to be about winning. And it was an opportunity to play. It was an opportunity to be very creative in my play. And to also get used to public speaking and to kind of gain confidence, but also to remind yourself it doesn't matter if you fail. And also for people to engage in their local communities mm. is extremely important. Well, maybe that's a really good counter to, to apathy, really, because I think apathy maybe stems from this win or lose sort of mentality mm. and the, the fear that we'll never get put someone into power that we want to. But this idea that you could actually just play at the ground level, community, mm. like work with people on the mm. ground and, mm -hmm. and make a difference at mm. least at community level. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's... Yeah, uh, neighbouring. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely important. But it's not just apathy, there's a great deal of pessimism. Mm. And also I encounter amongst people, there's a belief that, that their pessimism is more realistic than my optimism. Pessimism and optimism can sometimes be based on just kind of a fluffy naivety. But I have real life experience. I'm 61 years old and I have plenty of real life experience that tells me uh, that either amongst a group of people or working solo with ideas, you really can make a difference. Mm. And and I think with local community and neighbouring, etc., etc., there's a very prevalent cliche that people often recite. A place like London is alienating and hostile and unfriendly. And I always say to people, look, if you're having a fundamentally alienating experience, you're at least 50% responsible mm. for the experience that you're having. So if people aren't engaging with you, if they aren't making eye contact with you, if they aren't saying hello as your neighbours pass you in the street, it's quite likely that you're equally not making eye contact with strangers yeah. in the street and with your neighbours and you're not engaging in dialogue. And you know, and it, you know, it's up to us to try and encourage the sort of social experience that we want to have. Yeah, and to make that first move. Yeah. In terms of your art practice, have you got anything lined up? with jealous, or have you got any exhibitions, or is it predominantly on the street? Well, this year I am struggling to work in physical media. I mean, I, for the past two decades, I predominantly relied on my computer as my creative practice in all media, and I'm very, very happy working digitally. My, my street posters I create digitally and, and then they're printed out or screen printed. But this year I've committed to producing paintings and I am genuinely struggling. I'll get there in the end. And, <laughs> and I do have some solutions to the problem that I'm going to try out in the next couple of weeks. What sort of problems are you encountering? Well, I suppose... I mean, my pedestrian characters have very clean, straight edges, yeah. and that's really problematic. You know, and I've experimented with masking tape and you know, non-permanent glue and, and stencils, etc. Et uh, I, I found a method with a, an upside-down ruler where 
the sloping edge isn't touching the isn't in contact yeah. with the thing and therefore you can kind of use a, a paint pen to kind sure. of realize it but it's all a bit of a gamble i, I find i've still got kind of bleeding edges it's partly my inexperience um so i mean the solutions i've come up with is that i'm going to get the characters laser cut laser cut in wood and then i'll paint them laser cut in paper and work with sort of painted collage um, yeah. and, and very nice clean laser cut stencils as well mm. But that is a challenge, and mm -hmm. I despair. I've had quite a lot of despair. What sort of scale know. are the paintings? Are they similar size to the prints? A, a little larger. I, I, I've got. <coughs> I, I'm working with birch ply, and I've got some pieces that are about 110 centimeters by 50, and some are about 80 centimeter. Yeah, a, a little larger than the screen prints. Yeah. Well, I think I've asked everything I was going to ask. So, <laughs> unless you've got anything else you wanted to say, I, I did just think to mention because uh, in the introduction you kind of mentioned my band in the early 80s. Yeah, I was like, oh yeah, that was what I was going to talk about. And um, is there something you still expect? Explore. Do you still make music now? To a certain degree, and again, the computer enables that to a great deal because I, I don't play any instruments, but I've, I've always been able to hear music in my head and compose. And so, I mean, back in the early 80s when I formed a band, uh, pre-internet, pre-mobile phone, I'd be walking and I'd hear a song in my head and I, yeah. would, I would actually go into a phone box and phone my own answer phone to sing <laughs> into it. So when I got home, the idea was there. And Sim and I, I would sing to the individual musicians in the band. I mean, the band was my very first experience, successful experience of a, of a creative public project. I and mean, yeah. we got extraordinary feedback. I sang, I, I was very improvisational. We were primarily a six piece, but we had an open invitation to members of the audience to just come on stage, pick up a spare instrument or sometimes right. we'd have wow. kind of a couple of saucepans to bang together. Very early on, there was a woman who used to join us halfway through and she would just wail like a banshee <laughs> down the microphone. And also, as you mentioned, I used to, I had this kind of Robin Hood idea of shoplifting <laughs> random objects that I would find in the shop, in the shops in the day leading up to the gig, that I would redistribute amongst the audience. And you know, they would be, they might be an electric toaster or just a toast rack or hair dryers, <laughs> whatever really I could get my hands on. And I got a reputation for being a, a performance artist, I suppose, because I was also just gathering together materials and, mm. and kind of improvising how I was going to w work with them. And in my very last gig, I was a little bit of a, you know, I was like 22, 23, rampant ego. And um, at the very last gig that I did with the band, um, like I had this prima donna idea that we shouldn't do encores because I thought they were artificial. <laughs> I thought, look, we play their last song. If we come back and pretend we're going to, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be bothering these things now. Uh, my prima donna attitude also extended to uh, the record companies. I mean, we had a lot of interest in record companies. Mm. And I had this idea a little ahead of its time because I didn't believe in contracts. I didn't believe in all these pages and pages. I didn't believe in copyright. Yeah. And so I would have meetings with record companies. I say, look, I just want to sign a piece of paper that just gives you permission to release my record. I don't care if people rip me off. I don't care if people <laughs> record it on a cassette and, mm -hmm. and hand it out. Because in a sense, you know, I found that kind of a compliment of anything. Of course, right. the record company would say, look, Russell, we really love your music, but we just can't go, <laughs> we want, can't go along want to come with that it. idea. Yeah. I was going to ask where could people listen to it. It's on Last.fm, isn't it, I think? Or... Yeah, I think there's a few tracks up. Yeah. yeah. Again, I loved the album at the time. And it's a real shame that we didn't get any kind of live 
documentation really mm. uh, because that's when the band really came alive. Yeah, did you tour around much or was it Yeah, mostly London. Yeah. 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 And just a sort of approaching venues and Yeah. Yeah. Dingwalls in Camden was, oh, okay. was a very popular venue. No chance of a reunion then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I mean curiously I find as I'm getting older I mean, I have quite a natural sort of self-confidence, uh, etc. But as I'm getting older, I, 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 I'm becoming kind of aware that I want less of a spotlight on me. Um, mm. I can deal with the spotlight, but yeah, I think I sort of want to kind of blend into the background a little more. <laughs> Not appearing in lots of newspaper cuttings like you were exactly. showing us earlier. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, a curious thing with, um, I mean, something I sort of mentioned earlier is that you know, all my adult life, uh, experience kind of random strangers in the street making a judgment about my appearance or my choice of clothing and quite often particularly in the past getting kind of random homophobic or aggressive comments from people but one of the lovely things I found discovered about becoming older and maybe as society's kind of evolved a little is that when more and more now say in the past decade when a, a random stranger in the street makes the effort to actually say something to me more often than not it's complimentary Right. That's really nice. I like that. So things have got better. Things have got better. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> well, on that very optimistic note, I'd like to thank you for coming in today. Thank and thank you for talking to our students. They found there was some really good feedback from students earlier, that actually, when they approached us, um, to, to thank you for that. Um, thank you to Yasmin for being here as well. Looking for a place to study this summer? Morley College is one of London's leading education centres. We have something for everyone. There are courses for school leavers, adults wanting to upskill, retrain or to simply learn a new skill or interest. We're enrolling now at all our centres. Find out more at morleycollege.ac.uk forward slash enrolment, where London enjoys learning. <laughs>